The scripture for today's reading is from 1 Samuel 5. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy upon the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of the God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men did not or the men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This is the word of God to us. All right. Good morning. Thanks, Amy. So good to see you. Hey, if you uh, if we have not had a chance to meet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. I'd love to meet you after the service. So glad that you're here. And what a bizarre passage of scripture, right? Uh, we're going to jump in today. We're going to continue our series, Warrior Poet. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, really glad that you made it today. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 5 through 7. And listen, if, you, uh, if you've been with us for a while and you're reading along in the story, you're digging into the text and you're studying this passage as well, then chances are you came ahead having read this passage and you have questions about tumors and golden mice. And you just need some of those questions answered. And I get that. So, uh, and if you're here and you've not ever been a part of this series and this is your first Sunday, then you have lots of questions about what I just said. And we're going to get to that as well. So, uh, this is a bizarre, bizarre story that happened 3,000 years ago. And even though it's a really bizarre story, it actually has a lot of beauty and help and insight for a culture that we live in today. So that's where we're going to head in a minute. Just some guiding questions to, to help us as we go. What happens? What do you do when it feels like the work of God in the world starts to go backwards? What do you do when it feels like the enemies of God have won the day and God has lost and history takes a really, really dark turn? What, what do you do when the church the people of God look almost more dead than alive and feels like darkness has come upon the church and we're in a state of decline. What do you do? 
Well, this passage today is, is answering some of those questions, so let's jump in. And before we get into chapter 5, I need to just remind you uh, where we left off and give you some background story on where we are in this passage. I thought Aaron did a great job last week unpacking the story, but just to remind you what happened where we left off. Uh, one of the shows that my wife and I binge-watched, just as a confession, is the show 24. Any fans of the show 24? Not the new stuff, I'm just like the old Kiefer Sutherland stuff, right? And if you watch that show, what's so great about it is every episode at the very end, like the last minute of the episode, things are going fine and he just like fixed everything and terrorism is going to not have the day and, and you're like, yeah, go Kiefer. And then all of a sudden, the last minute of the show, it's like showing you these images of, of what's happening and it's like everything in the story turns from, from good to bad to worse and then it beeps at you. It's like beep, beep. I can't do it very well, but you can imagine, right? You know, that sound, and then it goes to black, and you're like, oh my gosh, I guess this is what I'm going to do all night, is just find out what happened. Like, I'm going to literally take 24 hours and watch this whole show. And this show ends on this terrifying, sad cliffhanger every time. That is chapter four. Chapter four at the very end has three images, three small stories, three vignettes that are sad and terrifying. And if you're following along, you get to the end of chapter four and you are devastated. What is going to happen? Here are the three, th- three things that take place. The first is that the, the people of God, the Israelites, are at war with the Philistines. And so what they try to do is they're losing the battle. They think to themselves, let's go grab the Ark of the Covenant and let's bring that in because there's all these stories of the Ark of the Covenant like going uh, Indiana Jones, burning Nazis' faces off and they're thinking that's what's going to happen, right? The Ark of the Covenant's just going to unleash the power of God and defeat our enemies. But that's not what happens. God refuses to be anybody's trinket or little lucky rabbit's foot. So instead of God using his power to defeat the Philistines, what happens is the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. 30,000 Israelites die, including the two priests, Hophni and uh, Phinehas. They die. And then the next story, the next vignette, the next image that we have is a messenger runs from the battle scene. He goes up to Eli, the high priest, and he says, Eli, I have bad news. We lost the battle. Your sons are dead. And worst of all, worst of all, the ark of God has been captured. Eli, the high priest who is overweight and, and just sitting, he's always sitting. If you read the story, he's sitting down, he's overweight. He's kind of let himself go and doesn't care about the people of God. He falls over backwards, breaks his neck and dies. So if you're following the story, it's like the ark of God has been captured. The priests are dead. The high priests are dead. And then news gets to uh, Eli's daughter-in-law, the, the, the lady who married Phineas, and, and she's uh, pregnant. She's about to have her baby, and she hears the sad, devastating news, and she actually goes into labor. The news is so overwhelming that she goes into labor, and she has a baby, and she names the baby Ichabod. Now, if you're like, you know, sometimes you read names in the Old Testament, and you're like, man, that's a bad name, but I'm sure the meaning of the name is good. Not with this. This is both a bad name, and the meaning of the name is really, really sad. Ichabod means the glory has departed. So this is how the chapter ends in chapter 4. The, cha- the, the way that this whole story ends in chapter 4 is the people of God lost the battle, 30,000 Israelites are dead, the priests are dead, and worst of all, the ark of God has been captured. And it's the statement, the glory has departed. 
So if you're an Israelite and you went to bed that first night after this event happened, your jaw would be on the ground. You would be in shock and disbelief. And you would basically be in your mind thinking to yourself, our God is gone and we think that he just lost. We didn't think it was possible, but our God has been defeated. This is where the story leaves off. Now look at chapter five, verse one and two, and let's see what happens in the Philistine camp. Chapter five, verse one and two. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. So here's what happens. They capture the ark and they bring it to their capital city, Ashdod. And once they get to their capital city, they walk the ark of the covenant into the temple of Dagon, who is the Philistine god. They believe that Dagon was uh, the god of the harvest. Uh, in this culture at the time, there, there, there's a lot of worship of Baal. And Dagon was actually the father of Baal. The Philistine God was the father of Baal. And so what they do is something that a lot of ancient cultures would do. If one nation defeated another nation, what they would often do is capture that nation's God or gods and bring it as a symbol of victory and triumph. And they'd place those God or gods into their temple for a couple of reasons. One was them showing that their God has actually defeated that nation's gods. And the other was because they felt like that God, the defeated gods, remaining powers would transfer over to the God that defeated him in battle. And so what they're doing is as this Philistine army defeats the Israelites, they're not just saying, hey, we beat you. They're saying, and our God has defeated your God. Dagon is more powerful than Yahweh, the God of Israel. And they put uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of the presence of God, not just next to Dagon, but actually beneath Dagon. So imagine you have Dagon and then beneath him is the symbol of victory and triumph that Dagon has defeated Yahweh. You have the Ark of the Covenant beneath that. So think about the two realities happening. If you're an Israelite, you go to bed this first night and you are devastated. You are shocked. You are weeping. You are mourning that all of the promises of God have failed, that everything that God promised to do in history through the people of Israel, now those promises are not gonna happen and darkness has descended on the people of God. And yet, the Philistines are going to bed with a celebration. They're throwing a party. They're drinking, they're dancing, they're enjoying the work of their God, Dagon, and his victory and his power. And so this is a tragic, tragic scene for the people of Israel, where they realize darkness has fallen on the people of God. Now, if you study uh, the last 2,000 years of church history, and you look at the work of God in, in history, and specifically the relationship that the people of God have to culture, you're going to find times throughout history where darkness descends on the people of God. And sometimes this darkness is external darkness, persecution, opposition, pushback. Uh, the, the people of God step into a season of suffering and persecution. Think about the first three centuries of the church. You have Jesus who rises from the dead, defeating death, and ascends into heaven as king over every king. And instead of what's happening down here being one of success and victory and power, what you have is the early church goes through 300 years of opposition and pushback and suffering and persecution. And the people of God are left wondering in the first 300 years of the church, where is God? Where is God and what is God doing? It feels like his work is going backwards and it feels like the world is actually 
victorious. Sometimes this darkness isn't external darkness. Sometimes the darkness that descends is internal. It's our own sin. It's our own brokenness. It's our own doubts. It's our own apathy. It's our own spiritual slipping, you know, back into uh, idolatry. And, 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 and so whether this darkness is outside of us or this darkness is inside of us, the reality is that there are seasons where the church is like the sun is bright and everything is going well. And there are seasons where the church, things are dark and things are in decline. Tim Keller talks about seasons. He talks about four seasons uh, of, the, of the calendar that we can actually apply to the life of the church. So take spring. Spring in relation to the church and culture is what happens when you're coming out of a season of opposition, but things start to like, uh, signs of life are around the corner. And there's hope that the church might have some sort of influence and power again in culture. Summer is when the, the church has the seat at the table in our world where everything is going according to plan, things are going great, everything is as it should be, then you have the season of autumn or fall, and this is where the church starts to experience some pushback, some opposition. Culture starts to to push against the church, and then finally this leads to winter, and winter is when everything around you feels dead. Everything around you feels like it's in decline and decay, and if you could just guess right now, where do you think the Western church is in relation to culture? You may not feel this, but we are not in spring and we're not in summer. We are absolutely in fall headed into winter. Does that make sense? It feels like, even in Oklahoma, that the the people of God are stepping into a season of darkness and a season of decline where everything the Israelites went to bed feeling in 1 Samuel 4, it's easy for the people of God to go to bed feeling in 2019. Here's what I mean. Think about this. Uh, in terms of being a Christian in 2019. Um, it's, it's a rough time to be a Christian, to be honest with you. More churches close each year than are planted. Every major denomination is in decline. It's estimated that by the year 2050, 35 million young people that were raised in uh, Christian homes will disaffiliate with Christianity. That's at a rate of more than 1 million young people a year walking away from the faith. That's breathtaking. It's estimated that the overall Christian population in America will go from 73% to 59%. Now, that may not sound like a big shift, but when you think about three out of every four Americans saying, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, to about 2050, now you've got uh, two out of four Americans claiming to be a follower of Jesus. That is a giant shift in our cultural climate. Think about this. I don't know if you've realized this, but we live in the age of the deconversion story. You've probably heard these stories. Uh, I felt like uh, growing up in church, it used to be conversion stories that you would reach out to your community and tell. You'd call your grandma or you'd tell people at school, hey, Jesus met me and here's what happened. And you tell your conversion story. But now we live in the age of the, the deconversion story. Where on Facebook, you post or you tweet out, yeah, I used to be a follower of Jesus, but now I don't buy into that nonsense anymore. And it feels like, I don't, I don't think this is true, but it feels like, uh, as a pastor watching this unfold, it's about one time a month that I see a well-known pastor or like a Christian music artist actually come out and deconvert and say, yeah, I used to believe all this, but now I'm freed from the, the bonds of Christianity and I've, I've been liberated into real freedom. And it feels like a dark, dark time to be a Christian in our culture. If you felt like we're moving from the center in our culture to the fringe, it's because it actually is happening. You're not just imagining it. 
John Tyson says it this way. He says, America is in some ways a schizophrenic culture when it comes to religion and public life. Every presidential candidate is asked about their personal faith, but if they ever really built policies around the Sermon on the Mount, there might be a second American civil war. Virtually every culturally engaged Christian in America today feels the tension in our jobs, in our communities, in the broader cultural conversation. Personal faith is welcome, but expressing our convictions or espousing ideas as truth in public is uncouth at best and often taken as coercive, intolerant, or even threatening. Do you feel this? This is the darkness and the decline that we are feeling as the people of God. Now, maybe you would say, honestly, Andrew, I don't feel it. Like, I don't feel it culturally, but what I do feel is the darkness of my own soul creeping in. What I do feel is not the enemies of the world. I actually feel the enemies inside of my own soul giving way and having victory. I actually feel my own temptations winning out, and I feel like I'm slipping, and, and my life feels dark, and my life is in decline. Maybe your marriage is falling or has fallen apart. Maybe your relationships are starting to break apart. Maybe you feel like your sin is constantly winning out and having the last word, and you're giving into compromise, and you don't know what to do. Maybe you're eaten up with unforgiveness or bitterness or wounds that have festered over time that you've never healed from. And here you are saying, I don't know about what's happening in our culture, but I'll tell you inside of my own soul, things feel dark. Where is God? And you might say, like the people of Israel said in 1 Samuel 4, the glory has departed. The glory has departed. God has left me and he's silent and the enemies have won out. If you feel like that, then this is a really, really helpful story for you. Because this is God explaining what he's doing in the dark. What is God doing when things go dark, when things go into decline? What is God doing when it feels like the enemies of God are winning out, whether external or internal? Well, let's keep reading and look at what happens. 1 Samuel 5, look at verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, Behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. I love this. This is so funny. So they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both of his hands were laying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. What is God doing when things go dark? Here's what God is doing. God is at war. God is at war, and he's at war with any idol that would ever dare to stand shoulder to shoulder to this God. Often when it feels like, where is God and what is he doing? You can answer the question with he's not just passive and he hasn't disappeared. He's actively at work both in our culture and inside of the church, even in our own souls. And he's waging war on our idols. That's what God is doing. Think about this story. This is bizarre. Uh, like in the ancient culture, what would happen if, if one nation would attack another nation and defeat them, they would take the king or the rulers of that nation and they would parade the king and the rulers throughout the town and then they would end this humiliating parade of showing, look, we've defeated this nation and their rulers. They would usually end it by cutting off the head of the ruler and the hands of the ruler. And that's them saying, we are taking your intellect and we are taking your power. We've defeated you. 
But this is an inverted story of that whole event because instead what you have is the ark of God, the representation of the presence of God. I love this. They like go to bed that night thinking we've defeated Yahweh and then they walk into the temple of Dagon the next morning and Dagon is bowing down to Yahweh. Like, oh my gosh, that is not how this is supposed to go. So they put him back in his place. And then the next morning, they walk into the temple of Dagon. And this time, Dagon Dagon is laying face down before the presence of God. But his head is cut off and his hands are cut off. What is God doing? God is humiliating the God of Dagon. God is humiliating any idol that would ever dare to stand shoulder to shoulder in his place. Anytime, anything would ever say, we've conquered this God and we've defeated this God. God is saying, no, I'm at war with you. God is in the business of humiliating and destroying our idols. So just a few observations uh, from this story. Number one, we all worship something. We do. We all worship something. It doesn't matter if you define yourself as a religious or spiritual person, or maybe you would be here today and say, actually, I'm an atheist, or I'm an agnostic, and I definitely don't consider myself to be a religious person. It doesn't matter whether you claim to be religious or you're irreligious. The reality is everybody worships something. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because for all the talk in our culture of uh, not being religious, we're the most spiritually infused culture that's ever lived, it feels like. It just looks different today than it did then. We don't have a temple, and we don't have the god Dagon, but we have our own version of temples, and we have our own version of Dagon, don't we? Like instead of uh, a church, it looks like a communal hobby that we all rally around. Instead of worship, it looks like a college football game. Instead of teaching, it looks like a podcast. Instead of a pastor, it looks like a therapist. Instead of a community, it looks like a gym membership. Instead of a Bible study, it looks like a book club. Instead of, uh, th- instead of like the God of the Bible, Yahweh, or Jesus, what we have instead is the gods of our culture that go by different names, like sex, or power, or money, or pleasure, or freedom, or success, or achievement, or comfort. On and on and on we go, but we are a spiritually infused people, and we're as religious as we've ever been. Everybody worships something. Tim Keller says this. He says, what is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. These are in many ways, there are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. So I just want to ask you, who or what do you worship? Because we all worship something. And it's very possible, especially in Oklahoma, to say all of the right things about worship of Jesus, but in functionality, all we're doing is we've created a different temple, and we've put another God in God's place, and now we're just using God to be subservient to all the things that we really are after. So I'm going to put God underneath my real God, because I need this God to get me the thing that I'm really after. What is it, or who is it? that you worship. Here's a second observation from the story. Our gods always fail us, but we often prop them back up. And I found this so interesting in the story. Like the Philistines, they walk in, Dagon's fallen down, bowing down in humiliation before the presence of God. And instead of their first reaction being, 
maybe, just maybe, there's something to this. Maybe the presence of God, the God of, the, uh, of Israel, Yahweh, is the God that we should worship. Instead, what they do is like, oh my gosh, let's fix it. And they put him back up in his place. And, and then the next morning, they see that he's been utterly defeated. And it's interesting that sometimes our first response when our idols are knocked over and the things that we're looking to for meaning and significance and value, when those things fail us, instead of making the connection that these things can't define us, these things can't be gods to us, there's only one God who can name us and define us and give us meaning and give us identity, and it's the God of the Bible. What we often do is we run to these idols and we prop them back up. We prop them back up, but God is always in the business of humiliating our idols and showing us how they can't define or name us. Like, let me just give you some cultural examples today. The God of politics. The God of politics. We are increasingly looking to our political leaders to be more than just public servants for us. We need them to rescue us out of a life of economic decline and be our redeemer and and give us a sense of hope and identity and security and And all of a sudden, the God of politics becomes more than just, I need this person to be a public servant, into, I need this person to be God for me. But just watch the news. Is that working for our culture? God is actively at work in the shadows, and he's showing the inability of politics to name you or define you or help you. He's he's showing his power over that God. Or take the God of freedom. In In our culture, freedom is our highest good, isn't it? Like what we want is just for people to affirm that no one else can name me. I get to define my own reality and I get to define what's good and evil for myself and just let me be me. You do you and I'll do me and I'm gonna pursue a life of freedom. And as we do this, instead of this bringing more joy and more pleasure and more fulfillment, we are now one of the most anxious, overwhelmed, exhausted peoples in history. It's not working. God is at work and he's humiliating the God of freedom. Or take another God that we worship, the God of consumerism and comfort, where if you have the resources and the money, then with just a few clicks, you can literally buy your way into the life that you want. But isn't it a scary feeling to get everything that you thought would make you happy, and you wake up realizing that it hasn't actually made you happy? Isn't it a scary thing to to consume and get everything that you want, but instead of you feeling satisfied, it just left you feeling empty and meaningless? It's because God is at work in the dark, exposing our idols for being frauds, unable to name us and define us. Last one, take the God of sex. We live in a culture that sees sex as on par with food and water. And now we get to define our own sexuality and we get, to, we get to kind of take this gift from God and use it the way that we want to use. But that has not led to fulfillment or more pleasure or more joy. It's led to the Me Too movement, which hasn't helped us. It's led to us using our desires and, and actually allowing them to get so out of control that we're harming not just ourselves, but the people around us. God is exposing the God of sex as not being able to name us or define us. And here's the third thing, the third observation from the story. Our idolatry always leads to chaos and destruction and death. As we continue to worship these other gods in our lives, it doesn't lead us to the life that we thought. It leads to brokenness and eventually destruction. Look at the story. Let's keep reading what happens in verse six. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, 
Isn't that interesting? He'd cut off the hands of Dagon, but his hand is powerful, and he's against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and they gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and they said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. In other words, like, get it out of here. We don't want it anymore. Send it to Gath. They'll be fine. So they brought the ark of of the God of Israel there, verse nine, but after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So I love the reasoning. They sent the ark of God to Ekron, right? All right, Ekron, you take it, you try it. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, understandably, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines, and they said, send away the ark of the the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there is a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This is both sad and funny, right? Because they are refusing to admit, like, maybe our God has been defeated, and Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the real God. Let's repent of our idolatry, and let's respond to the power of his holiness, and let's actually engage him as God. But instead, they're holding on to their idol, Dagon, and God is just humiliating Dagon and the people. And you know how I said a minute ago, when a nation would attack another nation and have victory over that nation, they would parade the king or the rulers throughout every town showing, we've defeated this nation. Well, they're trying to do that with the Ark of the Covenant, but it's an inverted story of defeat, isn't it? Because now the Ark is going from city to city to city, and God is showing everyone, I have the power and I have the authority. I really am the one true God. And it's causing all kinds of dysfunction and pain. The, the, the men of the city, both young and old, are breaking out in tumors. This is a little bit weird, but true. The, Greek, or the Hebrew word that's used there for tumor is actually referring to a hemorrhoid. And so what's happening to the town is all the men of the city are like breaking out in hemorrhoids, like a bunch of 90-year-olds, and they're like in a panic. Like, we don't know what to do. What's happening? This is awful. And the God of Israel has his hand heavy against the people. Apparently there was these rats that had started to infest the city and some say that this was like the very first version of the bubonic plague that existed as the rats were carrying this infectious disease causing people to break out in these boils or these tumors or these hemorrhoids and God is showing his power. And here's the point. The point is that as these people are holding onto their idolatry, it brings chaos into their life, it brings destruction into their life and it eventually leads to death. This is exactly what you see happening with the people of Egypt during the, uh, when God brings the people out of Egypt in the Exodus, is as long as we stand in opposition to God like this and we refuse to do what he's calling us to do, what happens is that never leads to joy or life. It always causes our life to unravel and to fall apart because God is the author and sustainer of life itself. And when you put something else above him to name you and define you, it leads to death, not life. 
So God is at war in this story against idolatry. But he's not just at war against idolatry. Let me just quickly walk you through this. He's also at war with his own people's false religion. And let me explain kind of what happens. So seven months go by of the Ark of the Covenant getting passed around to town to town to town. It goes around to five cities in the Philistine uh, nation. It goes around to five different cities. And eventually they throw their hands up and they're like, we've had enough of this. This is terrifying. Let's send the ark of God away. So what they do is they're like, well, maybe it's not God. Maybe it's just a fluke that all these rats have engaged our nation and are spreading this infectious disease. Maybe it's not related to the ark of the covenant. So how do we know whether this is God or not? So they create a test. They build a, uh, they build a cart and then they take the Ark of the Covenant, they put it on the, ark, on the cart, then they take two cows that had recently given birth and had uh, young calves that they were, they were feeding milk to, and they lock those two calves up. Now, if you know anything about separating a cow from its calf that's feeding, and by the way, I know nothing about that, uh, but if you know a little bit about that, you know that a cow cannot be separated from the calf that is, it is giving milk to. It just won't be separated from its calf. So they're testing, like, all right, let's put the calves in the barn, lock up the barn. Let's take these two cows that have just given birth who want to get back to their babies. Let's attach them to the cart, and then let's send this cart into Israel. And if it goes towards Israel on its own, then we know this was God's hand against us. If it comes back to the calves, then we know this is just a fluke. And then they take, this is the weirdest part of the story, they take five golden tumors So they like take a look at their tumors or boils or whatever they are, and they make a golden image of it, five of them, to represent their five key cities, five golden rats, and they put that on the Ark of the Covenant, on that cart to be taken back. And they're basically saying, God, if you're really doing this, then we we admit that you defeated us. And, and we, are, we are recognizing our guilt that you've caused our issues and we're asking for your forgiveness. They put it there as a guilt offering. The very first thing that happens is this cart with the two cows rushes to Israel, rushes right home. And there's a bordering, there's a bordering town between Philistia and Israel called Beth Shemesh and the Ark of the Covenant goes straight to Beth Shemesh. Now, if you're reading the story and as, as, as an Israelite, you're like, heck yes, Beth Shemesh, what a win for us because that's where the Levites are. And the Levites know how to handle the Ark of the Covenant and they know how to handle these holy sacred things from God. And yet here's the problem. The people of Israel are as jacked up as the Philistines. The Levites don't know how to handle the Ark of the Covenant. They make unlawful sacrifices in chapter six and then about 70 men peek inside of the Ark of the Covenant which they were expressly forbidden. They were not allowed to do that yet 70 men did it and here's what we read. In chapter 6, verse 19, and he, God, he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the people of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall we go, and to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Here's the point. The people of Israel were steeped in their own version of idolatry and false religion. 
They're as bad as the Philistines. They are not excited about the Ark of the Covenant coming back because they wanted the presence of God. They're, they're excited about the Ark of the Covenant coming back because they want the power that God has. They want the gifts that it brings, not the presence of God himself. And they inappropriately handle it and God ends up having judgment on them as well. And it's so sad, isn't it, that they encounter the holiness of God and they go, who could stand against this holy God, which is the right response. But their reaction isn't, so let's repent and let's bow down and let's confess. Instead, the reaction is, get the ark out of here. And they do exactly what the Philistines do. Get the ark out of here. We want nothing to do with the presence of God. And this goes on for 20 years, 20 years of the of Israelites mourning the loss of the presence of God. But God always comes through with grace. And here's how we're going to end. Look at what happens. He raises up Samuel the prophet, sends him to his people. And in 1 Samuel chapter 7, here's what he says. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. The people of Israel are steeped in their own idolatry. They love Yahweh, so they say, but they also are worshiping Baal and these other pagan gods. And yet God in his mercy raises up the prophet Samuel, sends Samuel to the people and he says, hey, come back to me. Come back to me. If you turn back with your whole heart and repent and respond, I will have mercy on you. So this is the invitation from God to all people, whether it's in our culture or in the church, the invitation from God is to repent and return. It's to identify your fake idols, identify your gods, identify those things that have your heart, identify the things that you're living for outside of God. And he's saying, come back to me, repent. That means to turn and return to me. Turn and return back. Now I'm not gonna read what happens at the very end, I'll just tell you, but what happens at the very end is beautiful. The people of God, they do repent and they do return and they, they take all their idols away and they worship God alone. And here's what happens. They're, they're gathering together to make a covenant to God again. And the Philistines hear about it and like, hey, we're gonna invade Israel because they're all gathered together. Let's just wipe them all out at once. And as the Philistines start to engage, the people of God, for the first time, they don't treat God like a trinket or like some lucky rabbit's foot. They humbly cry out to God, having just torn down all their idols. They say, God, would you rescue? Would you help? Would you deliver? And without the people of Israel lifting one finger, God thunders against the Philistines and has complete victory on them. Their, their entire army is routed and scattered. And for the entire life of Samuel, the Philistines never one time tried to engage Israel ever again. God wants to fight for his people. He wants to be present for his people. His issue is that he, it's not that he doesn't want to, but he will be no person's lucky rabbit's foot. Instead, he's saying, just come back to me. And if you come to me, I'll fight for you. I will defend you. I will protect you. I will lavish my love and my grace upon you.